Welcome to the podcast, everybody. It's been um, more than two months since we've had a sit down like this, and there's something that I want to share, a confession, if you will. Uh, for those of you who've been watching the podcast, you know I've been a pescatarian for many years at this point, but I actually started eating meat uh, about two months ago, and I wanted to share why. For two reasons. One, because uh, I've talked about it in the past, and I wanted to update people and let you know where I was at. And I'm not necessarily trying to move anybody towards my direction, but I wanted to just express myself honestly. And two, because I don't want, I just have been bothered by other experiences of authors and people that I've admired who I've looked up to for a virtue. And then I've found that they dropped that virtue (laughs) and I don't want to do that. Uh, So I'll let you know what's going on. I also, I guess there's a third reason, which is it, it connects to a lot of other things that I think even if you're not interested in the meat eating question will be very interesting to a number of people. Mm. So with that said, it's a bit of a story because it didn't. I didn't plan to start eating meat. I actually this started with a psychedelic journey. And for those of you who have been watching, you know that several times a year I do psychedelic journeys, often with MDMA and or psilocybin, which is mushrooms facilitated by a professional, and they've been really, really helpful to my life and my personal growth. And so in this one, I had been feeling for a long time that I was in sort of a winter creatively and in many phases. If Again, if I'd uh, spent more time to myself, was nurturing my inner introvert, not wanting to be as outgoing, didn't the gym, which I was used to be way more into, I was I was trying to remove a lot of things from my life. Also, the feeling was that you couldn't, you didn't feel <laughs> creative at all. Like when it came to doing work, you're like, I don't want to. I found that the few, what was fueling my creativity wasn't really healthy in a lot of ways. And so I was trying to cut a lot of the things that were not healthy for me out. And I was left with, well, then I just guess I'm hanging out. Yeah, pretty sedentary. <laughs> yeah. So that I was, I was wanting to connect with my creativity again. And uh, a lot of interesting things happened in this particular journey, but it was the last third of it that I really had made contact with that part of myself. And when I felt it, it was a familiar feeling. It was this expansive, exciting, the thing that kept me up at night, writing scripts, like where they would just come to me. Um, and I would feel it and then it would go away. And then I'd be really sad. And then I felt the creativity come back and I was feeling expansive and I could see, like I had a vision of my life and my future in many different areas of my relationship, business, and then it would go away. And I would be like disoriented and lost and sad. And so I started interacting and asking what's going on here and I felt my creativity speak back to me as if it were almost a separate internal entity uh, and it was like it took the shape if you will of a woman and it I was also at this you were, place you were there sick to watch <laughs> well what was it like to watch <laughs> there wasn't anything to watch was there Mm. <laughs> there was like it was just like nothing you know someone's having a profound experience it was all and i'm internal. just like i uh, didn't know you were even there yeah. yeah yeah it was all internal yeah it was all internal um but i felt this entity like the muse which is a greek mythology which is uh the mythological woman that comes to artists and poets and inspires them to create art and that if i'm being honest is is really my experience of creativity when i'm feeling most blessed, I guess. Mm. It's not everything that I create. Some of my creations feel like grit, but the uh, some of them and the ones that make me want to create more are like almost packaged gifts that are dumped into me. A lot of rock stars describe their, when they get their tune, they're just like, it just came to me in a yeah. dream. It's like, what, you just came up with like, let it be in a dream? Yeah, Mother uh, Mary came to me. Yeah, told me let, let it, it be. be. <laughs> let it be what? came to him in a dream. He wrote it in the morning. Eric Johnson's Cliffs of Dover, if you're a guitar fan, he said he wrote that in five minutes. It's his, by far, his most famous song. It's an incredible tune. Yep. And he just he just had it. Um, yeah. So I'm not either of those guys, but I do know something about having stuff come to you semi-complete, which is really an incredible feeling. Yeah. So I was interacting with this thing and I was having a hard time. I was like, what's wrong? Why haven't you been present in my life? And it responded to me that it is uh, very tough to be with someone who is bereft every time you leave. And you would ask me, because we've talked about this, what does bereft mean? And <laughs> I know now. This is the second time we recorded this. I know exactly what it means. <laughs> bereft 
means really sad, basically destroyed. And that has been my experience of when I feel creative, I feel expansive and thrilled. And then when it's not present, I go looking for it. And the relationship has been like a man and a woman where the man is kind of uh, dependent upon that woman in the relationship. And when she goes out to spend time with her friends or does something, he just sulks while at home wondering what he did wrong to make her not be there. And then she comes back and he's needy and grabby and what you know how do i get you to stay and it's like geez like and each time she does come back he's in more disrepair he's in yeah (laughs) he's just more destroyed and that it was you know communicating with me and i was getting to know my creativity as this relationship that my ego if you will has with this other part of myself um and then that relationship start i'll get to the the meat stuff don't worry (laughs) It, it comes from this that relationship started to unfold further. And I saw a lot of the ways in which, I guess the shadow side of my relationship with the feminine relates to my relationship with creativity. And then I was asking it, so what is it that is, you know, fractured our relationship? Because the, the woman who facilitates me asked, you know, maybe you should ask what, what you could bring to this relationship. And I was like, you know, trying to be the good boyfriend almost, if you will. And... It was indicating that I try to use it for my own glory, which I don't think entirely describes how I relate to the feminine, but is the shadow side of how I relate to the feminine, which is to say, there's a part of me that if I have an attractive girlfriend, wants to show that off. There's a part of me that when I started Charisma on Command in this, loved that men responded to the fact that I could go up and speak to a girl at a bar and make her laugh. Mm. And as regards creativity, it was not me being open to creativity for creativity's sake. It was me being open to creativity that gave me a video that I could put on the channel that made people really happy and like me, that earned me money, that did all of these secondary things that were not merely connection with creative energy no it was a transaction so you would use your creativity to transact in a way that benefited you (laughs) in very egoic ways correct not entirely but that was certainly a part of my relationship yes and it was like i think this is somewhat true of my relationships it's like you want part of me but not all of me so when I look at my relationships, a complaint of my girlfriends has always been, you want me to come over when it's convenient for you. You don't want to do these other things that I like. Like you want to carve out this space that works for you, for me to fit in and be available. And you don't want to meet me in the ways that I want you to. Mm-hmm. And I've never been controlling in at all in my relationships, I don't think. But what I have been is I was like, here's the available space for you. And that's it. And people are like, well, I'm a bigger, I'm bigger than that. Like, I want you to, I don't know, go to my family's thing, this, or like fly with, take me on a vacation or something. I was like, that's not what's available. Like this, this is the box that's available. And I've been that same way with my creativity, which is here's the box that's available. Make me a video (laughs) that people like, that is fun for me to make, that is related to these topics. Mm. And so I, you know, that created a lot of shame in me as I started to see that dynamic uh, arising and, you know, was thinking through my relationship and work and creativity and started, I think, more sincerely asking, how can I be a better relationship partner from a place not of trying to get out of being a bad boyfriend, but of like actually seeing the partner? Another vision that I had that again, I don't think this is entirely me, but it's been the shadow aspect of it, is me, which has never happened, but it's just like the movie image, in a, in a wife beater, walking outside, like about to go do a drug deal or something with the woman that I'm with is like shaking me, like, you know, there's a crying baby inside. It's like, don't go, you don't have to do this. And I have like no connection to her pain, if that makes sense. Mm. Like I've, another thing that came through in this was, my connection with what I would describe as nagging is like, ugh, how do I get that nagging to stop? Let me give you what you need to just not nag me 
anymore, whether that's a word or the bare minimum number of date nights or the, you know, like the, how can I make this complaining stop versus feeling into why I'm being nagged to go on more dates or something and Mm. feeling the love and the desire for love that is actually informing that. And so, yeah, I think of, you know, I'm sitting there playing video games and girlfriend comes over and wants me to give her a hug and greet her. And that to me is like, okay, I need, let me give you the minimum amount of attention so I can get back to this thing that I'm, <laughs> that gotcha. I'm doing. And it has not been a, a deeply relational part. Again, this is not my entire relationship experience, but there's aspects of it that are like that. I think if it was my entire experience, I probably wouldn't have many relationships. Got um, it. So I'd like to ground this a little bit. So you started with why you came from pescatarianism to we're coming there yeah i can feel where we're going (laughs) yeah like so people to know it's coming around the corner it's coming around the corner so this is all to establish that my relationship with what you might call the feminine creativity uh has been uh has dysfunctional in some ways and this is what it was showing me and so i said okay what can i do what can i offer what can i give you and one of the things it's like was crying like you don't even feed me and my relationship with food has always been one of fuel and rules. Disconnection too. Deep disconnection. Uh, taste is unimportant. I will, at what supplements do I need? What things like this path of traveling down my gullet is just to get it into the furnace where it can be burned and converted to I think most importantly, so you can energy. get it to stop not nagging. Because what yes. for some of the viewers that don't know, I live with you. I've watched you just not eat for 24 hours mm-hmm. and you only not eat for 24 hours because after 24 hours, it actually nags you enough to go eat. <laughs> yeah. And I think you could go longer if that <laughs> nagging would just go away. And so that's yes. your connection to food. It's like just enough to get it stop nagging. Correct. <laughs> yes. And so that's the nagging piece of like, I have to eat. But if yeah. I didn't have to eat, I would like, I don't savor things. Yeah. And, and if I'm there, I'm, I'm more interested in the conversation or the other thing or getting back to what I was doing. Yeah. Um, and then on top of that, I added rules around, uh, this is a not okay food. This, this is causes suffering. This is an okay food. This doesn't cause suffering. And so you guys have probably heard me if you're watching this podcast, talk about my ethical stance on eating meat. And like that was, everything was within that context. Um, and so I asked, what do you want to do? Like, what would you like to uh, what would you like to eat? And I was, you know, hoping to hear more of what already you've made okay. And it was very clear. It was like, I want steak. And that created a a real point of tension in me. And it activated what I feel come up, which is, if you will, like the masculine mind, rational part of me that is dominant in me, I would say, gets very afraid when that's suggested because that activates me being bad because I have rationally come to the conclusion that, which I think is totally fair, uh, the factory farming in the United States is deeply, uh, causes far more suffering than it even needs to in the name of being cheap. And that even if you go beyond that, that it's a real thorny thing to, even if you have an animal that is raised humanely, uh, that is, it is a real ethical quandary slash bog around what you might some people call it humane slaughter some people call it murder depending on your perspective um for me the real issue has always been the torture that i would say is present in factory farming but still there's large ethical questions around other mammals especially and i've drawn the line and said i'll eat fish but not these other things and so that created a, a whole issue that i didn't know what to do. And um, in trying to forge this relationship with this part of me, I said, okay. And I went out and the next night when I was feeling up to it, I got steak. Well, for some context, because I also am like understanding, this is like a dialogue you're having in a psychedelic journey for about 15 to two no, hours. No, an hour or two. An hour and, or and two. And then continual. And then, and then you then come down do with I have to do it? And crystallized then, yeah. insight, <laughs> yeah. which is yeah. This point you just made. Well, I'll even before. So, I, the, concretely, what that has meant is that I've had steak in the last two months. I don't know, three or four times, and I've had chicken much more regularly. But um, there's a couple pieces that I think are what. So, my my mind hasn't changed, if that makes sense. 
but I'm trying to engage in a project that I have mentioned for a while of shifting the seed of morality to this rule-based morality that I've been cultivating since I was a philosophy major in college and then even before that when I was a kid Mm -hmm. to a heart-based morality, a trust in myself. And that's very scary because when my heart or my gut tells me to do something that contradicts what the rules say, that makes me frightened that I will just become a monster (laughs) and is very scary. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I've not wanted to lean into that for that reason, but this journey was one that sort of told me this is important. This is deeply important. Yeah, you said yesterday, which is uh, I think brought more <laughs> insight into it, which is like as a child, you you might have this um, desire to punch your brother in the face because yeah. he's <laughs> stolen your toy, and you're just like, it's coming up in me that I want to punch you in the face. And then your mom said might say you're not allowed to punch your brother in the face, and so this voice becomes the rule set of you don't mm-hmm. punch people in the face just because you want to it's not nice yeah and so that sort of same energy is carried forward all the way to now mm-hmm. <clears throat> and now you're getting back in touch with like uh i can have that experience of my uh, connecting with my intuition and it being not a horrible thing i can <laughs> feel that same thing that you want to punch me in the face i'm gonna kill you <laughs> and uh <laughs> And you won't act on it, but you can also listen to the intuition because it has something to speak to you, some sort of wisdom. So what, yeah, I can, I, I've thought about this since I am, um, I think everybody has an experience of being socialized, which is you come into this world purely instinctual. And if you've got a toy and your brother has the other toy and you want it, you will crack him on the skull <laughs> with your toy. Or like you've seen two-year-olds just it. like they just take, take, grab, smack. They're deeply instinctual, egocentric, and their trust in their own instinct is total is total and <laughs> and and they're violent <laughs> and socialization occurs in all of us and mm-hmm. we develop the voice of our parents the superego that tells us you can't do that you can't do that you'll hurt other people if you do that and i think that there's a larger project that we all i believe i don't want to tell people they have to do this but I, this is what i feel like is to get is to recover that instinctual behavior in an adult container mm-hmm. and context that has a bigger, deeper connectedness and understanding of others that doesn't come intellectually, but comes from a felt sense. And I don't think I'm done, but I do feel that in order to progress further in that, I have to start trusting my gut and heart more and not letting my head be the one that is as in charge. And that is scary. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that I realized, which I'll share. I don't know if it's as material, but I, I, it occurred to me is that I've always, I think you've like ethical conduct has always been very important to me. I went to college and I gravitated towards philosophy because I wanted to know what it was to be a good person. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were a number of inner things that happened in my childhood, which I've talked about. I don't want to go too deep into it, that left me feeling stained. One of them was being sexually abused. Other ones were feeling like I'd let down people in my life, like I was supposed to protect my younger siblings more, and I failed to do that on a Mm -hmm. number of occasions. And I think when I look back at how I became the way that I am, it was a deep fear and belief that like the core of me was bad, was stained irrevocably. And that on top of that, I was like, I need a strong set of rules to stop my core from coming out. Mm. And so the rules, and I was like, get me the list of what a good person is. Let's go into ancient history. Let's to go, find them. Let's go what to did they back. figure out. We'll, we'll, we need to learn what a good person is. And if I look at my thing, it is, it is tended towards a fear-based ethic, which is let's, like even the question that got me into uh, not eating animals was not a heartfelt connection. It was, how do I know that I wouldn't be a slave owner? Because I might be if I was born in 1830. Can you um, expand that? The question that started me down the line of, of maybe I shouldn't eat animals was the question of, how do I know that if I was born in the year 1830 that I wouldn't own and beat slaves? Because I might do that. How do I know that I wouldn't be the Nazi that gassed the Jews? The theoretical head conversation is if I go into any time zone, how do I know I'm going to be contrary to- I'll just do the worst thing that is available to- Or I'll do what everyone else does. If you teleport me to Egypt, I'll worship the pyramids Mm -hmm. in uh, 
800, 8,000 BC. Yes. Like you, you're seeing that you're just a circumstance of the society and time you're put in. A fear that I am merely as good as I am demanded to be by my surroundings. Got it. And a desire to be better than that. So my ethic has been find out what like a good amount of, I don't know, ethical approach to your clothing, your food, charity is, and just have a buffer zone a little bit above that. Even like we've done a lot of charitable giving, which I'm proud of, that didn't, on, you know, some of it came from a heart connection, which I appreciate, like Scott Harrison, the founder of Charity Water for activating that in me. But many of the years it was routine and habit. And there's this, uh, whatever altruism, effective altruism that says you got to, you know, give between 10 and 20%. And I would just like write a check for 16, feeling, (laughs) feeling that I needed to check that box in order to do it. But it wasn't coming from a place of connection to the cause. It was just, I have to do this. This is a requirement on my list of what it is required to be a good person. Also, also you, the way you figured out that charity was like, what is the most effective way to have my dollar go the furthest. It wasn't like I will donate a thousand dollars to my local community mm-hmm. so I can see it spread and feel that joy within yeah, yeah, me. It yeah. was like, where does the dollar go the most? And it was like mm-hmm. water. Yeah. So everything became an abstraction and a yeah. rule and a, uh, my, my ethical conduct was meant to keep me safe. I think from that inner sense of badness, one of the things that came through in this journey was you are deeply connected to everything and your attempt to disconnect and be done with the suffering and the badness of the world because you don't eat mammals or birds and because you donate X amount of money does not absolve you of your deep responsibility for the enormous suffering and not just the suffering, the connection, beauty, connection to connection it. to everything. And it was, you know, logically what that looks like is these rules made it so that I could go anywhere and purchase anything that was a fish and wasn't this without consideration of, did this salad come from a land that is a monocrop where they steamrolled all the rabbits in order to get there and kill them? But like the rules actually shortcut a lot of the intuitive Mm. felt decision-making that it was like you every time, and I, I haven't been perfect, but it's every time you sit down to eat, you need to feel th- your connection to the web of life. Recognize that something is dying. Some, sometimes it's an animal, sometimes it's a plant, but it's like there, there are sacrifices and growth as a result of this. And not as a punishment to feel that, not to beat yourself and whip yourself on the back, but to recognize and feel deep gratitude for that and so i have felt since then when i started eating um the results have been a much much deeper sense of gratitude uh around food particularly and on the occasions that i've had steak it's been not overwhelming but nearly overwhelming (laughs) i'm at the restaurant and i'm like having a hard time keeping it together because i feel uh unworthy of it yet here I am. And that, that then makes me go, you are being called to show up in a much bigger way than you have in the past. Mm. And it's not, and not eating these four steaks does not absolve you of that. <laughs> like you, you are here in this web of life and beauty and suffering, and you have to, not have to, are given the opportunity to expand be bigger, support more, help more. Yeah. And I feel, the, and, and you can't, not can't, your desire to pretend that isn't the case by cutting out certain foods or donating a certain amount of money and being done with it is just- Spiritual bypass. It's a, it's a spiritual bypass and it is beneath where you are going. Yeah. And uh, so that was a piece of it. Another thing that has happened since then is um, I have- felt way more creative and expansive and I've written way more things and I have what I had always had in the past which was this running list of ideas which would just like my my writing process for videos was never one video done another video go yeah, yeah, yeah. it was always like planting like they're all kind of growing at the same time 
and then there's a harvest and it's like, which one of these do I want to pick and just take over the edge? And so that process has started and there's a lot of those that are percolating right now. Um, and I haven't felt the desire to have pork or octopus or anything like that, but I have had steak on a handful of occasions and I've had chicken much more regularly. Um, and I've tried, you know, to integrate my head and make sure that it's not a factory farm, that it's organic, free range, et cetera. But, you know, I, I don't think that exempts me from the taking of a life that is economically demanded when I, when I exist, have a chicken and well exist. Yeah. Exist. I think that's, that's a big truth. Um, and there's different, of course, degrees of existing. Like you can, yeah, you're, you're playing this game with a world and a society mm-hmm. like, um, that you're definitely connected to unless you mm-hmm. want to have a farm and live off the grid. And I, and I don't want to draw moral equivalencies between everything. Like, I think there's a way to live a life where you indiscriminately fly on a private jet, mm-hmm. eat whatever the hell, and, and, or, and behave in a way that it's not even the behavior. It's from a place that is just deeply disconnected. I guess I'm just tapping into the energy of you trying to absolve your existence in mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. And you're now gifted the opportunity to appreciate and have gratitude and... Um, enjoy the privilege of living now with and uh, stepping into doing more, like mm-hmm. you said, growing your container. So the thing that has been, uh, yeah, and what is, I had hoped, and I think I'd mentioned months ago, like I was hoping at some point that my heart, if you will, and gut would come online fully formed and I would be able to transition from head rules to like a deep sense of felt connection that I hear some people describe when they talk about their veganism or their whatever, where it, they don't feel the call to eat meat, you mm. know, like it's, or whatever. Um, I don't know what anybody experiences, but I've heard them talk about it like that. And I'd hope that like one day that would just happen. And what sort of came to me is you're going to have to show trust in your own gut and your own heart before it complies entirely with your rule sets. <laughs> and What maybe, you mean like listen? Maybe one day I will meet a cow that will change my life, you know, and, and forever impact the fact that I no longer want to order steak. Mm. That's, I'm not, I don't rule that out, but I had wanted that to occur before I let go of my rules. And this lesson has been, you're going to have to let go of the rules, step into trusting your intuition, your developing intuition from your heart and your gut, uh, in order to make decisions that are going to, um, violate your mental rule set that you have felt very safe in for a long time and it is for a larger purpose and uh what's interesting about this is that i think rule sets one of the safety of rule sets is that they're universally applicable applicable and you can discuss them with other people and if you agree on the premises the conclusion follows equally for all beings everywhere that's one of the beautiful things about logic is that it, it enables uh, deep understanding, communication, clarity, and uh, it's it's an external decision maker for you if you accept the same premises. And this, it's only for me. <laughs> this this carries no weight for someone else did not have that did not have the experience that I had. It doesn't have any implication for someone who didn't have the experience that I had. And uh, the willingness to stand in my own experience. Ah. Uh. And go, this is going to upset, contradict, you know, and I cannot put together an argument that will universally satisfy. Yeah, this is really interesting because you had an internal feeling of um, unworthiness and stainedness and you went externally to find the rule sets Mm -hmm. of which you could absolve yourself. And now you've come back to that this is the internal way to address this. Yeah. And by internal, yes, uh, let's say subjective and objective. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sure. That it is only I will, and and it's not is eat. It's not a new rule. It's it's literally like the rule if there is one is every time you got to sit down, feel your gut, not just with every order, with every bite. And I haven't lived up to this at all, but like feel consciously through the decisions that you're making and how they feel inside of you, um, and that is your new goal, if you will, and not determine a set of rules and follow them from a behavioral perspective. 
which had been, you know, it didn't, as long as the money flows from your bank to the charity, who cares why, why you did it? Mm. Um, and so again, concretely, like this year, I haven't yet donated to charity. I don't, it's not the end of the year. I still may, but I have not done it out of a write the check mode, which I have done every other year. Oh, it's time to write the check. I am allowing, and we'll see, I don't know if I will this year, but I'm, I'm trying to just trust that inner sense of yeah, see what comes up, how much guilt comes feel, up. Yes, and before. to not do it from guilt, to say I am trying to develop a greater capacity of authentic connection. Mm. And the guilt that would have me behave in a way that releases some of that pressure is actually taking me backwards. Um, and so I think there might be a time where, like, if you look at the surface level of my behavior compared against an ethical list, it dips. Mm-hmm. But I have a sense it's like a lot of the dips in uh, when you're learning is that it's, it's a dip to get to a, a larger, higher, um, to escape the local maximum to get to a more global maximum, if mm-hmm. you will. But um, I don't know that. It's, there's, there's, a, there's a degree of, I know that. <laughs> I'm, I'm positive of that. But that's just me. I can't nice. prove that to anyone else. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that was it. That's that's what's going on with the meat eating stuff. And there's a lot. Um, I had also, I think we can go from this to other things. Creativity has just been really, really big in my mind and heart in the last couple of weeks. I have uh, felt it much more active, though I've also felt it go. And I've, I don't know, do you want to, anything around this topic that we want to touch on before I move on to something else? Uh, the creativity thing, you mentioned planting many seeds at once. I actually do the same thing. And I've seen artists talk about this, which I uh, just think is an interesting insight. If like planting many seeds, you'll see them talk about a song that's a hit song now. And they'll be like, ah, I wrote that with a, you know, 20 minutes ago. And then we came back to it eight months later. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just something like wanted me to come back to it. And I just think that's an interesting way to think about writing music, producing videos, uh, ideation, things that require originality, mm-hmm. um, that it doesn't just come complete. Yeah. Um, it comes in spurts and they don't fit together sometimes. And it seems like the quicker you can recognize that it comes, <laughs> the message comes, can jump jumbled multiple messages mm-hmm. in one. Um, and you may have to piece them together at different yeah. times is, is an interesting idea. Um, and I think the garden way was a cool way to situate that be like i have this vegetable this vegetable and they're all coming up different mm-hmm. different vegetables and uh got to water water them at different times and yeah this idea may come now you're reminding me what i haven't said which is that uh, that box that i'd drawn for my creativity fit make me this video i would only say 20 to 30 percent of my creativity over the last several weeks has fit in that box 70 or more percent has been me writing episodes of television shows that I want to make one day like for our, about yeah. our Dungeon and Dragon campaign. Uh, it's been creativity in not forcing it into that box. It has been it has been way more bountiful in other areas that don't have clear payoffs to my ego or my wallet or my anything else, but like they exist for me and that that enables almost the overflow that puts some into that box of what is commercially viable. Yep. And I think this is something when I watch people like Rick Rubin, who I'd yeah, love yeah. to have talk about it, it's the desire to make a hit or the desire to have your creativity work for you financially is what often crushes people's creativity and they get nothing. And what he is paid a lot of money and people love him for is just saying, we're dismantling that box. Mm-hmm. We're, we're making what it sets what up environments. We are making what we are making and energies for yes. the person to fully create yeah. original stuff. Yes. And uh, he's he, a music he, producer and he's worked with a bunch of. And he gets artists back in touch with their creativity. And sometimes they make their best work. So one of his huge success stories, he's got many, is Johnny Cash revitalizing his career yeah. with uh, Hurt. Hurt, you know, which is not something he would have done uh, without opening up. Mm-hmm. So that's been an interesting thing. Uh, I've noticed, we talked, I've seen, as I was like looking through YouTube, I mentioned to you that I saw there's this whole group of Charisma on Command copy channels. And I see, uh, it got me thinking about the creative process. And I think one stage, the early stage of creativity is just copying the people that you love. And so if that's what they're doing, great. 
I copied my favorite authors and would just submit papers. I didn't like plagiarize them, but I just ripped their style. So the guy- Their who, voice. Their voice. Chuck Palahniuk from Fight Club. Yeah. I just wrote like him for a while. And, and I think that's an important stage. But if you don't learn to copy at deeper levels, this is something that I mentioned to you, I think you are cheating yourself out of it. So if, if you uh, look at YouTube right now, Mr. Beast, everyone's copying Mr. Beast. The surface level way to copy Mr. Beast is to, I gave people $10,000 to stand in a circle. Like that's a very, that's just like ripping off his content, doing it with his text, with the same speed of cuts and the, blah, blah, blah. like that's, that is a very surface level way of copying. Another level is to adapt that to your niche, which is, I gave people $300 every time they could do a push up, or I gave people $300 if they could, uh, you know, name that basketball team or whatever is, is to realize that, oh, he's doing contests and he's making things game shows. And like, mm. how can I port that to what I'm doing. But then I think there's a, a deeper thing and why he stays on the cutting edge and other people trail him. Uh, there's multiple reasons for that. He's willing to do crazy shit. Yeah. <laughs> he's seven he's, days underground. He's willing to sleep underground crazy. and live underground for seven days, which I'm not. Uh, but the question that he asks himself is what would be amazing? What would be awesome? And I think that is, this is the creative process you recommend people copy. That is like the depth of creativity is what would be, is asking yourself, what would be fucking awesome? <laughs> and then, and then leaning into that and doing that. Yeah. Because the interesting thing of when you ask that to yourself, you're going to get a unique answer to yourself. You. He gets, it would be a YouTube video that would get all mm -hmm. these views. And when you ask yourself, I like basketball. I'd you might like, say to have a dinner where yeah. all of my friends come over and it's a potluck and we play video games yep. after. And like, what would be amazing and awesome? What would be thrilling? Like yeah. those sorts of questions. Uh, would, what would I do if I had a hundred million dollars after I was done partying? Like those are the sorts of things that access really personal creativity mm -hmm. as opposed to just like copying uh, at, at different levels what other people are up to. Yeah. Um, Anything else on that topic that you want to hit? Um, oh, I had one other thing. And I was just going to say, this is the deep creativity because this is what, is what I've been, had my antenna out for. There's a, God, it's called Rick's something, Tales of Tumune, which is a, the world building guy that I mentioned to you. He's spent 10 plus years or something inventing a world in his mind. And it's, he's got all of the history of every continent and everything and the lore and uh, the exports of each particular town and detailed maps of it all, right? Which is... This is a guy who has a Dungeons and Dragons fantasy in his head. Fantasy head. And he plays it with his friends, but he's been really developing the world. And at the time he made this one video just describing 10 years of this, he had 900 subscribers. But his video hit it big because he just put so much heart and soul for 10 years. And eventually... He's made videos for 10 years? He's made this world for 10 years. He's made videos for a long time. Okay. And he's got, he had 900 subscribers. He's like, thank you to every one of my 900 subscribers. It means the world to me. And it's been three, four weeks and he's got 22,000 now nice. off of this one video with a 300,000 view thing. And I, this is one of the things that I think I most disagree with a lot of business advice is when they're talking about how to succeed and they're like, you're building your business and you need to find a niche with a starving audience. You need to find a niche that has really high paying customers, da 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 I don't disagree that that's a way to make a lot of money. But if creativity is important to you, uh, I find that people like me, like this guy, are much better suited to do things that they can do for 10 years without winning. Because you will eventually become excellent at that thing, and then serendipity can happen if you're willing to find ways of marketing, distribution, et cetera. So like when I picked uh, speaking with women or social Dating. skills, that was not like a starving market that people were clamoring for information on. People were not dying to get the Bill Clinton charisma breakdown, but it was something that I could lose at for a long time. It reminds me of the Doctor Strange scene with Dormammu. It's like, you can never win. It's like, yeah, but I could lose forever. Yeah. And that that makes you my slave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> my Dormammu, prisoner. come to parlay. I've come to bargain. Bargain, that's it. Yeah. And uh, if that that has been, I've lost a bit of that, which is there's this, okay, does this work? Does this work? Does this work? Instead Especially of, in the short term. Instead of asking, is there a way to set up the game so that... I can happily lose forever. I'm going to try to win. 
But like, how could I happily lose forever? And that was what informed the beginning of Charisma on Command, which is if I move abroad and I reduce my rent to 2000 or let my rent, my living expenses to $2,000 a month. And all I need to do is this many coaching clients, which I can, I think I can get, mm-hmm. then I can do this forever. Mm-hmm. And I can fail and fail and fail and fail and fail and fail and live abroad doing what I love. Yep. And that's winning. And uh, this guy did not need 22,000 subscribers. He didn't need 300,000 views. He doesn't need whatever comes after this. He got to spend 10 years drawing his map, making his world, hanging out with his friends. And then if it's just thanks to YouTube and the internet, if you share that, if you document the process, if you learn basics of marketing, distribution, and packaging, mm-hmm. I do believe that people... because connect with stuff. And I don't think that every one of the 300,000 people that watch that video are D&D players. No, I think, no, no. I I think, think they came for the heart. And, yeah. They came for the love, man. They came for the heart. And people can feel that. Yeah. Uh, which isn't to say that you can't succeed at a business with starving customers because you realize that people need their trash taken out and so you're going to set up a waste management thing that maybe you don't really care about, but you see that hole in the market. I just have really never known anyone like that. Everyone that I know succeeds more reliably when they love the thing yeah and they can lose at it and it's not a niche a perfect niche play yeah um and the people that i've seen try to pick perfect niches in my life i know that they're out there but have not succeeded at the same level they get bored and they quit um so a little bit around creativity there and it's been a long time since we've had one of these but we talk hassan minash sure we'll do that hassan minash for those of you who don't know had a New Yorker article written about him. Now it's been probably a couple of months that was called Hassan Minaj's Emotional Truths. And in it, the they interviewed him and he confirmed that he had essentially made up aspects of the stories that he told in some of his comedy specials. The three that they focus on were one where he talks about uh, the girl not wanting to go to prom with him. And he tells the story of being rejected at her doorstep, which apparently didn't happen. He says she did reject him, but not at the doorstep. Another one was of an FBI agent infiltrating his mosque after 9-11 as they look for terrorists, culminating in this guy pinning him on the hood of his car. Uh, Didn't happen. His mosque wasn't infiltrated. He's got this big scene at the end of his special where he shows on a giant screen the 60 minutes of the FBI agent who did do this in a different mosque, like shows this guy and makes a big point of it. Didn't happen. Then the third story is about opening uh, an envelope uh, around the anthrax scare time. Uh, that had white powder in it. Allegedly, the powder fell onto his little, I, I don't know if his son or daughter's, like, infant cr- infant's face. He was rushed to the hospital. His wife freaked out at him. Didn't happen. He did get an envelope with white powder and said, wouldn't it be crazy if this was anthrax? And that was that, <laughs> that, was that story. And so he was beat up for this in the news and then made a video um, that I thought was so interesting because it seems like he got himself off the hook without taking responsibility. And I thought it was, uh, if if it worked, it's a masterclass in, let's call it persuasion. <laughs> or handling cancel culture. In hand, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just very surprised. And some of the things that I thought were interesting is he focused on, which was true, the weakest part of the argument against him, which is I see, I see a lot of people do this in arguments. You make three points against someone I just do character assassination. <laughs> I just, you got a better point than me, but you cheated on your girlfriend in fifth grade. And yeah. so, uh, uh, so therefore, you're a well, liar. Yeah, so th- he focused not on the meat of it, which he, there, he he has a 20 minute video and he spends, I think more than half of it on the weakest aspect of her story, which is the one related to the girl in high school who didn't go on, go take him to prom. He spends a long time and he has uh, read receipts and he shows how she, took his conversation and unfairly edited it to make him seem like he was saying something he didn't. And she did. Which seems like fair accusations and like, yeah, man, f- these fucking reporters, <laughs> you know? Like yeah, they, yeah, say something, you take the four, yeah. first two words and the last two words and you slam them and together. So and so he's able to, to, to uh, hurt the credibility of the reporter and spends a tremendous amount of time on that. Mm-hmm. And then in the back end, really has, in, in my opinion, almost nothing of substance to say about making up the story about the FBI agent and in fact goes, you know what? Fuck that guy because he, somebody asked him if he felt sorry about taking a guy who he'd never met, who had nothing to do with him and putting him on a special. And he said, fuck that guy because he went in and did this to Muslims. It's like, so that guy does something bad and you can just use him however you want and your stories to make yourself the victim and him the bad guy. Yeah. That's how that, like it was 
it was uh, disturbing to yes. to watch that. Uh, and I thought that was interesting that he had stuck to the concept of emotional truths. Yeah, I was going to say. Throughout this, that these things didn't happen, but in order for the audience to feel the journey that I want to take them on, I if I say this, this creates a better emotional roller coaster and I collapsed events. And I, I, another thing that I see people do is in arguments, we have these things like emotional truths that we carve out exceptions for. We say like, there's, there's a time and a place where you're allowed to tell the emotional truth of something and that's totally acceptable. He's misapplying that, <laughs> right? So like, we talked about, you talked about Dave Chappelle. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me, um, because I like the personal stories. It's like mm -hmm. I use emotional truths to tell stories all the time and I embellish mm -hmm. them so that people listen. I told you a story of like, I got jumped in college. And like, if I tell you I got jumped in college and nothing really happened, no one really cares. It's like, you don't understand. I was so scared at the time. <laughs> I felt like I was dying. Mm -hmm. And so, but if I tell you I was jumped and there was a gun mm -hmm. and it pointed in my face. Well, you and never I said that. You've never even done that. I'm telling, what I'm trying to connect is a real story that I was scared for my life. And some people be like, yeah, so that happens all the time in Philadelphia. Like, but huh. nothing happened. You weren't hurt at all. No. Yeah. So it's like, but you don't understand. I had to scream fire, fire, fire. And I was scared. And so when I'm- Well, what you're describing is telling the truth though. Yes. But I'm telling you how Hassan Minaj would embellish the story to get you, the viewer, yeah. to understand that my emotional truth is more valid. And that's why I'm bringing in a gun into the situation <laughs> so that you- Well, what you're pointing are bringing out- more credibility into What my you're story. pointing out is that- the way that people experience something when present and the way that it sounds when the facts are related are often mismatches. And my guess is that that happened a lot to Hassan when he was a kid and when he was experiencing being picked on or bullied for being different and for being uh, from India or whatever, that, my, he, that he learned people don't understand me when mm -hmm. I tell them the truth of yep. my life. The only way to get them to understand my internal feeling, it's a lie, is to lie about what happened. <laughs> And that way they'll get the severity that I want them to feel. Yes. And so what comes first is I want you to have a reaction. Mm -hmm. And if you look at Hassan's, like, where was he driving at? It wasn't humor in those moments. It was elevating himself at a time where victim status was incredibly high and hero status of overcoming the victimhood was super high. And uh, yeah, that, that was what he wanted to happen. And the story that he had didn't create that. So he had to change it to make you feel a certain way about him, which yes. I think is... And he transformed the word of emotional truth to benefit him millions of dollars in TV specials. Yeah. And that's the major problem I have. It's like, he's, they're just emotional truths and this is what everyone does. It's like, yes, I do it, but no one pays me thousands and hundreds shows around the... <laughs> no one pays me money to just lie to them all the time. And, and to be clear, and if you did it in a way that I found was uh, detrimental to me or screwed up my understanding of the world, I'd be pissed. You know, like yes. even even in a personal relationship, like if you related a story to me and it was and you lied in a way that just didn't make it funny, but actually impacted my understanding of who you were or who like that somebody else had or a mutual you, friend we had. I'd be, yeah, I'd be fucking pissed. Yeah, yeah. Like, but yeah, but that it's and uh, I think a good point to point this at of like, and he pointed to comedy again. He again he uses words to like um hide his actual prerogative and things and so like i you've everyone's seen a lot of the dave Chappelle's specials and there are a bunch of lies in there he talks about a guy uh crackhead coming into his house and him having a loaded gun where he has to shoot him with buckshot birdshot buckshot birdshot and, <laughs> and the guy still survives and you just know dave Chappelle didn't murder somebody yeah. in his kitchen uh but you do know that like the emotional truth he wants you to know is that like this guy's crazy and then he's willing to go through bullets to to <laughs> Um, whatever I forget what he was he's doing. Just trying to make you laugh, and it's to what end? And other other commentators caught on this pretty pretty quickly. What I thought was most amazing about Hassan is that he seemed to, at least from the comments, have turned the tide by focusing primarily on the disreputability of the journalist. Yeah. He also came in there with what I would describe as a very patient reaction, where he didn't yell and scream. He said, "Well, let's take a look at this," and he was able to, in my mind, not learn the lesson of you lied and you got caught. Yeah. And, and this wasn't an oversight. This is a, probably a way of making your content that is more than the three stories and perhaps a way of being in the world in your relationships, where if you want someone to feel something, you at least within the context of performing on stage, feel entitled 
to make stuff up. This happened years ago and many times. There was Oprah Winfrey had a lot of these authors on that had written these horrific books. A Child Called It. I don't know if he, she was on Oprah, but the other one was A Million Little Pieces, James Fry, who had this horrible addict story. And it came out that he was an addict, but it wasn't that bad. And the things that happened in the book never happened. And the, the question it's everybody asked was, story. no, it was a true story. The question everyone asked is, why didn't you just write this was fiction? And he couldn't answer. But the answer is, because then you wouldn't have read it. Yeah. Because <laughs> you wouldn't have read it. And if Hassan had said, this, this isn't what happened, but I think it's funny. It's, <laughs> it's not that funny. And it's not that interesting. And it doesn't really tell us anything. And so if, if you're relying on the lie to build an edifice of mm. fame and fortune and uh, attention, and that's, yeah, it's, it's messed up. And no one, like you said, he watches Dave Chappelle is confused about what's going on with the buckshot. No, they're shot. just laughing. They want to see more lies. Yeah. And, and no, one, no one's you know, going to the police in Atlanta or wherever and being like, <laughs> Dave Chappelle, have you guys looked into this? So yeah, anyway, that was a long time ago, but I thought it was very impressive how he was seemingly able to turn the tides. I don't know if he was. Um, and then uh, one other thing, uh, Charles Eisenstein, we should reach out to because after this whole meat thing, somebody recommended his book to me, which is called The Yoga of Eating, mm. which had uh, independently of my thing come to a number of interesting ideas about food, which I've tried to incorporate, which is the deep instinctual connection to your gut and your heart and the question of what would be right for me over or at least elevated beyond where it normally is for most people asking, what does my blood work say? What do you know? The optimizer question. Even before this, I, I did what I always do, which is I wanted to sit down and get this done and I chugged a healthy green drink and I just <laughs> got it into my gut. It's like, that's not the way this is supposed to be done. Like you're supposed to listen to your body. Uh, because just trying to put everything in the furnace is not the way. So he might be an interesting person to speak Reach out to. to. Yeah. Um, even in you telling me the yoga of eating, I have, um, I have revulsion to the idea of doing that because it's like, feels so privileged. Yoga of eating? To feeling what my body wants. And then it's like, dude. Well, what's funny is I think this- For all of human history, they didn't get to feel what their body wants. They had to go fucking kill something. And then- stuff it down their throats and i don't know it just feels just ridiculous and privileged i don't know and so i feel guilty about like yeah. doing this practice you know what i mean i think what you're highlighting is interesting because you you have that privilege regardless of whether or not you are conscious of it right you get to select your food whether or not you appreciate are aware yes. of and yeah, are yeah. conscious i think this is how people relate to a lot of privilege in their life which is because because having privilege is socially frowned upon these days and you lose out if you're a Nepo baby, not lose out, you lose out socially if you're a Nepo baby and are shamed for it. And if you come from advantages, people do not delete their privileges. They just learn to not appreciate them and hide them yeah, yeah, yeah. and lack gratitude for them. Yep. And so what you're describing is like, I don't want to do that. It's like, well, you're still benefiting from the privilege of getting no, I'm able still going to choose my food. I'm still going to choose whatever food I want not out going of my out fridge there and, at what hour and I'm going to eat half of the thing. But I'm not going to appreciate it because that would be that would be wrong. That <laughs> it would reveal it would reveal that I'm actually privileged yes. in what I choose. Yeah, which is funny. And I think that that mirrors uh, a lot of how people feel about things because of the pathological way that we've come to treat victimhood and then its flip would be privilege yeah um, we've elevated victimhood to like you get a crown <laughs> at that point you get to dictate what is said you get to dictate i also get to i feel if i am the victim of something i get to have my opinion much yes, more loudly. Yes, you get an opinion. And I don't know where victim. I got that idea, but I'm just like, if you I don't need, get to I know choose, where you got that idea. If I don't get to choose what I get to eat, everyone gets to know that I'm not choosing what I eat and yes. I yell at them for it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, and there's a responsibility taking in when you recognize the, I think this is one of the things that is confusing about the whole victim piece, which is there are victims in the world and they need to be uh, listened to and there's reasons why they might not come out and all of that stuff is true. But one of the problems is that when you embrace that entirely to the exclusion of your power, you necessarily let go of your responsibilities, right? Like what, what might I have done that did not cause me to deserve this, but might have made this bad thing that happened to me more available? What responsibility might I have to move past this? And what you're describing is not wanting to have the responsibility of... Mm 
gratitude or the responsibility of answering the question of why do you eat what you eat because you don't even think about it yeah you just do it and you're you can't be held accountable because you don't even think about it <laughs> i have a lot of like shirking of responsibility even yeah. if i was the victim i don't really want to identify as it because then i have the responsibility of holding that role mm -hmm. too mm -hmm. it's like a uh, part of me just doesn't want to hold the responsibility of yeah. something v versus interestingly like if you are a victim like you said you get an opinion and it mm -hmm. counts and people have to listen mm -hmm. and responsibility uh, the burden of responsibility is lifted like you're not expected to do anything more than feel how you feel and say what you want to say and yes. we're not going to push you further than mm -hmm. that which i think is uh, a pathological way of dealing with victimhood. i also feel that the prior way of dealing with victimhood around say hollywood and like harvey weinstein type behavior was also fucked up which is there are no victims <laughs> you know like yeah, power you chose might this. makes right and uh, we have no understanding of the emotional duress that someone can be put in to get them to acquiesce to something that they, that is deeply wrong for them and that they don't want. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it was screwed up before it's screwed up on the other side of the pendulum. Hopefully it lands somewhere safer. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Anything else we done? Um, do you want to mention the swing back of world culture oh. that you're sure sort of using as a litmus test with the OKC well, um, I think this news. is, yeah, I think this is interesting and it's related to the victimhood thing, which is uh, we are definitely past peak woke. And one of the things that made me realize that was if you guys have followed the story of Josh Giddy, who is, uh, he's a basketball player who plays for the Thunder in Oklahoma City. He was accused online of essentially statutory rape of, of having sex with a minor that was there and there's um Lots screenshots but it's not totally clear and there's some evidence but he hasn't said and that now the family's not cooperating but the fact that he has not been deleted and removed from the team i do uh, two years ago he'd be gone mm -hmm. i think and it, there's a number of other athletes that we just watched videos of there was a punter on i think the bills who had an accusation against him that turned out to be completely false he was gone there's the guy on the dodgers the pitcher who wasn't canned because I think he was already past a little peak book and he was a more talented athlete probably than the punter. Uh, but his it was revealed that the accusations against him were completely fabricated in order to steal money and there was hard evidence of that in this woman's text messages. And I think that we've seen enough people collectively as a society um, game victimhood, steal victimhood, use it to abuse and hurt others that that... I think we're, we're hopefully coming back to a healthier place of not believe everyone who claims victimhood, but investigate mm -hmm. everything. Uh, don't shut out things that you don't immediately understand or can't conceive of that famous person doing, which, which seems to be where it should have been all along. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Josh Giddy thing just made me go, oh, wow, we're like, he's still playing. We're past there. You need to substantiate the evidence before he's going to lose his career, which I think is a huge improvement over where we were a while ago. I Jeremy Piven was one of the first people he did an interview. I don't know, but he was one of the, the guy on Entourage, Ari. Yeah. Uh, and he had a thing and he says it's total bullshit, but it was just, it was one of the first ones and it was just, you're done. Ties was he, cut. Was he removed from uh, the Mike Tyson podcast? Is that what he was currently doing that they just removed him from? I don't know. Um, cause he was on it for a while and then he disappeared and I wasn't mm -hmm. sure if that, the timing matched up. Um, Another one that's interesting is, and again, I don't know, Kevin Spacey, who had a weird response to his allegations has won in civil court against, I don't know all, but many of his accusers. Now oh. civil court and criminal court are not the same. It doesn't establish the truth of the matter, but, uh, it's interesting that, I mean, he was just done they, he, canceled, they, the they show. canceled his hit show was over now to be fair his response with that video was unhinged and it added credibility to this guy's lost his marbles yeah, and i don't really remember the details did you see the video no he started talking like his character frank underwood and oh, that's... it was just crazy it was crazy um i don't know what was going on uh but we're past that i think of the this is over uh Aziz Ansari lost his show, Master None. Right? Yeah. He was the guy who had a date where everything was consensual and then she wrote a salacious story about it. And, you know, he was... This was early. This she, was, what year was that? I don't know. But that was pre the peak of it. That was just, you get accused, you lose your yeah. show, you're cut. Yeah. And now we're to, 
it seems like a healthier place of like show like let's let the evidence come out yeah which is good um, another random thought is that came in the last 24 hours was the Elon Musk stuff. Oh my gosh. Um, and oh my gosh. It was interesting to get your side of the story because you're like, have you seen what Elon Musk has said? And it's like, he's telling the advertisers to go S his D, right? Get fucked. Yeah. Go get fucked. Um, because they don't want to advertise on X, AKA Twitter anymore. And then I went on TikTok and saw the clip and saw the reaction to this. And people are really praising him. Um, they're in the comments on TikTok saying, like, go Elon Musk, the only one standing up for us. And so it was interesting to see your reaction. You can tell me yours. My reaction, yeah. The community under the post uh, so in comments. I'm not, I don't know. Like, it seems to me that the label of anti Semitic on the thing that he said was un, not necessarily appropriate to what he was see, saying. I didn't see this either. But I'm, I'm leaving that aside. I'm, I'm holding that I'm a CNBC thing. He was a petulant child. He, his demeanor, and I could break down the body language, he was so reaction-seeking, so entirely reaction-seeking, hoping, begging for a response from the audience or the host. It was... Actually, when they didn't agree with him, he said it again louder. Yes, yes. It was <laughs> Might be an energetically so childish. And he may or may not have a fine point or whatever, but that's... I, these days, I'm becoming less interested in behavior and outcomes and more interested in the place that things come Originate. from. And when I watched that, I was like, this is a petulant, whiny child in front of a microphone. I also felt the, um, did you see the follow-up? He says that uh, they're going to kill Twi Twitter and that it's going to be their fault and everyone is going to see yeah. that the media companies kill Twitter. And it's a different energy than I expected of a guy who's just like, I'm going to beat this. Mm -hmm. It's much more like defeatist you, and you're you, in trouble. You kicked over my sandcastle. Your mom's going to come. They're going to see the that. Tell to the judge. Who's the judge? The, uh, the public. It's it like it was. Yeah, it was not strong leadership, I would say. And again, if even if this winds up being a good play with some section of the audience on his pull on whatever political side, the. I'm confident in what I watched there was just like not you when you're in that state, you don't want to be in front of a microphone. Yeah, yeah. You want to go address those feelings in a private place and come back more collected. Yep. Uh, and he's got so much money that it doesn't matter. And so who cares? But like, you know, I, I he he, I think, might benefit, would definitely benefit from uh, fewer megaphones held to his face. Yeah. Because uh, he, he is, I've read Isaacson's book and it paints a picture of a guy who is deeply capable and hard working and also incredibly childish. And that on maximum display, magnified, does not public. seem to serve him very well. It's like address these things and these some of this childlike wonder can infuse these, these things that you do. But yeah, the... the the face that he made, everything was just very. It was shocking. It was shocking. Reaction seeking. Yeah, yeah. What you said, he was like, this dude's acting like a child. And then to see everyone just like um, praising him because he's. There's uh, a culture war going on. It yeah. doesn't matter. If you tell if you tell Disney to go screw themselves, then some section of the audience is going to be happy. Vanderverse. And I think it's also, I haven't gone deep into it, but what he's accused of, this is the same thing that I felt with. I don't know if it was Andrew Tate or. Someone else, when they when they want to take down someone and they're pissed at them, uh, this is the Logan Paul thing as well. I thought that him going down for Suicide Forest was so, that was not, in my opinion, the worst thing that he did. He misguided. Was, it was like- He was misguided you, and he was uncomfortable. Like He was laughing. He's like, he was uncomfortable and he shouldn't have been there. Fine. But he, prior to that, he'd been such an asshole for a week in Japan. And for the prior several years, he'd done so much- crappy behavior that there was like it, it was they were waiting to pin it on one thing to take him down for that mm. and i feel similarly with this elon musk thing because i looked at the tweet that he said and i anti-semitic is not my understanding of what he was pointing at he was vague at one thing and uh it seems like there's a grievance with him for a number of other behaviors that are all getting pinned on this one thing that is people are rightfully pointing out is this is bullshit Mm. Like they're withdrawing because of anti-Semitic remarks. That's just nonsense. I don't believe that Elon Musk feels that way. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think he's given indication that he does either. So 
that's yeah it's it's all getting pinned on this one thing which is this was what happened with milo yiannopoulos as well was he was a do you remember him yep he said a bunch of stuff and pissed a lot of people off and then they found a podcast where he was talking about being essentially abused by like when he was a kid by older gay men and saying this is what happens and you know they were bringing me into the fall and uh, okay, Milo Yiannopoulos' pedophilia is okay. Talking about himself being on the receiving end of it, by the way. Yeah. And it was done. And it's, you're pinning all of your resentment onto this one thing. And it was inappropriate then. And I think that happens a lot in uh, these these spaces. Yeah. Um, you know who's a good example of that is uh, Dave Portnoy has had a number of growing resentment from other media companies trying to that just don't like the way he runs things mm -hmm. and has faced a number of bullshit misogyny claims misogyny and, yeah. claims that um yeah instead of just being like i hate this guy he's a dick and he was rude to me and that will <laughs> always continue like you'll be able to defend that argument for the rest of his life yeah, yeah, yeah. Have to continue doing that stuff yeah um but yeah uh that's pretty much it from what's gone on my brain Cool. All right, we're gonna we're gonna leave it now. Um, if you guys want to get in the comments, I'm sure that some of you have been <laughs> activated or inspired by certainly the first half of this conversation. Creativity, <laughs> creativity. What were you gonna say? We generated some creativity. Well, I'm sure we've we you know whether you're upset or not. I do feel uh while I am interested in the conversation around this and I'm open, uh, there is a part of me that is. I wanted to share it, but I'm not trying to persuade anyone, and I feel pretty grounded in what is right for me at this point mm. of my life. Uh, that if that evolves and I expect that it will, I'll keep you guys posted. But uh, mm. yeah, I'm not looking to necessarily engage in the logical discussion or argument around this right now. But if you do want to share something, feel free. Awesome. And if you want to join us on Patreon where we talk about everything we learned this week in the business, you can do so. Any dollar amount gets you access to that. Appreciate all you for watching. We'll see you soon. Peace. Peace.